Hello and welcome to Spirit Pig. Our mission is fulfillment for everyone. The goal of this show is to introduce you to the people and the ideas that will help you live truly fulfilling lives. And today I'm speaking with Adam Alter. Adam is a New York Times best-selling author of two books, Drunk Tank Pink, which investigates how hidden forces in the world around us shape our thoughts, feelings and behaviours. And his recent work, Irresistible, which considers why so many people today are addicted to so many behaviours. He's an associate professor of marketing at New York University's Stern School of Business, with an affiliated appointment in the New York University Psychology Department. His research has been published widely in academic journals and featured in dozens of TV, radio and print outlets around the world. He's written for the New York Times, Washington Post, The Atlantic, and has been invited to share his ideas to companies such as Google, Microsoft and Fidelity. Adam, thank you so much for saying yes and for being here. Thanks for having me, Duncan. I appreciate it. This is actually the first interview for quite a while because I've had a, um, I've taken a, a bit of time off because I've been doing some writing and some other stuff. So I'm really excited to kick it back off again. And I've been having a lot of fun researching your work. A fact or something I heard you say earlier was humans would prefer people were mean or horrible to them than to be ignored. It's far yeah. worse to be ostracized or ignored than it is to get negative feedback. Yeah, I, you know, when we think about the kinds of rewards that matter to humans, we obviously today in this world focus a lot on money. We focus on a lot of objective things. Um, and social feedback is something we never get tired of. It's actually one of the reasons why Instagram's so so difficult for us to resist, whereas other photo apps where you don't naturally share everything, where there's no native social network, just don't grip us as much. So that the fact that you share things on Instagram and you get instant feedback makes makes the program the app really hard for us to resist, and the same is true of of any social feedback. And it, you, obviously, we prefer positive social feedback. We like hearing that people like us and think highly of us. But it, when you intersperse some negativity in there, it just makes the next burst of positive feedback more rewarding. So we need a little bit of variance. We need a little bit of positive and negative. Um, but but as as you just suggested, the, the worst thing is to be ignored, to be ostracized, to be excluded. There are some amazing studies that have been done by psychologists where you play this game called cyberball, where you're, you're tossing a ball on the screen to virtual people all around the world. And in one version of the game, there are three of you and you, you're all throwing the ball among each other. And then at one point they stop throwing it to you. These are two other people who, who are supposedly somewhere in the world are throwing this ball between each <laughs> other. And you're sitting there just being ignored. And it, it, people report just this incredible sense of, of uh, negativity and sadness and it's quite a profound experience. So it's better to be included, even if it's slightly negative, than to be ignored. That's the basic idea. Does this tap into sort of the tribal mentality, hunter-gatherers, like the idea of being ostracized from the tribe, that sunny, that's like survival threat, red alert, red alert. Do you think that's what it's from? Yeah, I think humans as individuals, especially if you look at the you know, evolutionary past, we're incredibly weak. We're not strong. Um, we have good endurance. We can run a long way. But that doesn't really help us when we're when we're out in the wild as as uh, kind of single organisms. And so, um, whereas we survive very effectively and are quite creative and capable when we're in groups, where we're supportive of each other, alone we're we're really toast. And so, I think the idea is it's it's better to be included, even if that inclusion is is not always positive, than to be ignored, because that's basically a, it's a death warrant. It's a terrible thing in the evolutionary past to be to be outcast. Um, and so, I think. If you want to trace it back to the to its evolutionary roots, I'm sure that's a big part of it. 
you, you might imagine that if you're doing work, let's talk about it in the work context, but I think, I think this lesson applies in other, other areas as well. If you're doing work, you, you, you'd imagine that you want to get paid reliably. So you want to know that for every, I think, 100 widgets you put together, you'll get a certain amount of money. That seems like logical. That makes sense when you, when you say that, when you hear that. But that turns out not to be true, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's complicated. The, the, the thing that you're contrasting here is these two different ways of rewarding people. So, you know, the, the one way of rewarding people is this very predictable schedule where you get roughly the same amount of reward and it's it's interspersed pretty evenly. So you get maybe every two weeks you get a paycheck or every month you get a paycheck and it's roughly the same size. Now, if the paycheck is rewarding enough or necessary enough for you to survive, you'll keep coming back to the job over and over and over again. But you won't be hugely motivated by that experience. If you look at the way people engage with things like slot machines and lotteries, where there's a, a small chance for a really big reward, but it's uncertain when that reward will arrive, it's uncertain how big the reward is, you bake that uncertainty in, that's much more engaging to people. Um, you know, there, there are a lot of really interesting experiments looking at this with with lower order animals. There's some with, with uh, they've been some done with pigeons, some done with rats, some done with mice, some done with monkeys. One of the versions of the experiment, it's known as the the, the rat casino you have these little rats that are trained to push a bar when a light lights up. And, um, you know, in the one version of the experiment, it's totally predictable that every 10 times they push the bar, they get a little pellet of food and they eat the food. And they keep doing this until they're, they're no longer hungry. And then they just kind of sit in the cage and wait till they're hungry again. And then they start responding again. That's the, that's the version of work or the, the version of positive feedback that most of us experience at work, you know, that every two weeks you get a certain paycheck. The, the rat casino is a bit different because in this condition, there's a lot of uncertainty. Sometimes the rat keeps pushing the bar and gets nothing. And then sometimes it pushes the bar and it just gets this mountain of pellets that roll out like a jackpot in a casino. And they'll go and eat the pellets. And then they'll get to the point where um, they're full, they're satiated, they don't need to eat anymore. But instead of stopping like the other rats did in the other the other condition and just enjoying themselves and sitting there and being full and happy, they keep playing the game over and over again because they're so engaged by the possibility of this uncertain reward that they'll keep playing sometimes to the point where they play the game, which is way more engaging than actually eating. So they starve, they get exhausted, they starve, and some of them actually die playing the game because they decide not to eat because the game is so engaging. Now, they don't have all the self-control resources humans do. At some point, something would kick in and say, hey, maybe we should go and eat. But you do see people doing things obsessively because that reward, that structure of the reward, that uncertainty is just incredibly engaging and motivating. See, that word uncertainty, it came up a bunch of times. Um, I remember you saying how you're talking about cliffhangers. And I think the original cliffhanger was the 1969 film, The Italian Job. So yeah. like the, fi- the final scene when what, what happens It's um the, the car, it, 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 the bus, the bus kind of crashes halfway off the cliff. It's teetering. You know, that old thing where the bus yeah. is teetering on the edge of a cliff. You've got these guys who've just robbed a bank. They've got all these uh, bars of gold. And on the one side of the bus, the side that's that's not over the cliff is all these bank robbers led by Michael Caine's character. And then the other side of the far side of the bus that's teetering over the edge, there's all this gold, everything they've just kind of worked for. And so they're trying to work out a way to get the gold and to also get themselves out of the bus. And the whole thing's kind of teetering. And the last thing you see just before the the scene cuts to black and the movie ends is Michael Caine says, hang on a second, lads, I think I've got an idea. And then it just cuts to black. So you have no idea. Does the bus go over the edge? Do they make it out? Do they make it out with the gold or without the gold? And so because there are all these question marks, some people respond very negatively. They say, I want certainty. I want closure. That's, That's how humans work. We like things to be tied up in a neat bow. Other people just still talk about it and try to work out if there are any clues. You know, there there have been a lot of other exa- examples of this. Uh, the, the show The Sopranos in the U.S., which wrapped up 
in uh, I believe it was 2007, it's the same thing. It fades, it just cuts to black and no one knows what the outcome was. Um, there are a lot of things in, in popular culture that don't have a, ni- a nice neat bow tied around them, so we don't know how they end. And um, we return to them over and over again. We ruminate, we keep thinking about them. So it's a big principle in psychology that, that that uncertainty, as you said, brings us back over and over again. Once you know the end of a story, your brain basically says, all right, I'm going to pack that away. I'm going to start thinking about new things. I'm going to move on to the next thing that's interesting to me. But while the thing is still open, while there are question marks, while the, the story hasn't been tied up neatly, uh, we keep returning to it. We ruminate, um, which is a, a quite an, a powerful principle in, in the world of storytelling. It really is. Because when you were saying that, I'm thinking like <clears throat> multiple things, because on the one hand, it, it, like you said, it makes you keep on coming back. It, it, it keeps interest. You keep on talking about it. But then in terms of like your what well-being, like it, it's that interesting balance between humans. We want that certainty, but then we'll, we'll get bored. And so we want the uncertainty, but then the too much uncertainty is just is terrifying. You don't know what's up and down. So I, I don't know. Is, is there a balance or is it about like? Yeah, I think there is. I think you can't have you know, if everything in your life were uncertain, that would be incredibly stressful. And I think if, if you were engaged by everything because it hadn't been concluded and wrapped up, that would not be good. You would you'd have too few resources to deal with whatever was immediate, whatever was in front of you. The fact that people still talk about the Italian job, they still talk about there's a podcast serial, which was very successful. People don't know the outcome of that. There's no, There's been no resolution of the facts of that. And so people talk about that. There are bulletin boards and online uh, sites where, the, where people still talk about what they think the, the answer is. I think that's great for you know an isolated cultural product here and there. But if that's your whole life, if everything is 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 not wrapped up, if you don't know the answer or the outcome of anything, I think it's it's overloading. It's a huge amount of cognitive load, and it, it doesn't leave many free resources to deal with things that are new that creep up from time to time. You know, every day that we're doing things that are very immediate for us, and if our brains are tied to things that are in the distant past because they haven't been resolved. I think obviously that's negative. So there, there, but there should be a balance because I think if you know the answer to everything, there's something quite mundane about that. Um, and it's the, it's the open loops that engage us. So as long as there are some of them, but perhaps not too many of them, I think it can be quite good for us. In a Newcastle university, there was a, uh, there was a break room, uh, a pot of coffee and an honesty jar. <laughs> what, what happened? Yeah, I love this study. Um, so th- this is in a psychology department at the University of Newcastle. And um, the the coffee pot was sitting on a countertop and there was a sign next to the coffee pot that said, if you take coffee, put 20 pence in the jar. If you take milk, put another 10 pence in the jar. Had sort of a little list, like a price list. There's no way to enforce this, obviously. So, you know, psychology professors are coming in, graduate students are coming in, they're taking coffee. Theoretically, they're putting a bit of change in the jar. And the idea was that you'd replenish the supplies every few weeks when, it, when they dwindled. Um, but the, res- the researchers, as they were, kept coming in and seeing, hey, look, there's no money in the jar and the coffee's empty. Um, and so they discussed some solutions. And, and, you know, they talked about things like, I'm sure tongue in cheek, should we put in a surveillance camera? And they realized that's more expensive than weeks and weeks of coffee. So no one's going to monitor that. <laughs> And one of the researchers said, well, you know, we don't need to actually watch people with a camera because we know that if people feel like they're being watched, they behave differently. Even just making them, give them, giving them the sense that they're being watched or making them consider what it would look like from the outside if they did the wrong thing, we might get them to behave better. So for 10 weeks, they had different pictures that they put above the jar. So for the first week, they had flowers. 
and they found that nothing happened. People were, still weren't giving money. The next week, they put a, a picture of a pair of eyes. So all you could see was just a pair of eyes <laughs> above the jar. And you can't help but feel watched, even though there is no, there's no one there. You walk in, you see the pair of eyes. People kind of felt guilty. They, they got the pens out. They threw them in the jar, the, the coins out and threw them in the jar. And so the jar kind of overflowed. And they did this on and off, flowers, eyes, flowers, eyes for 10 weeks, five weeks on, five weeks off. And the, the pattern of, uh, of giving to the jar went like this. It kind of seesawed, totally perfectly matching the presence of these eyes. And so, that, you know, that even the, the police in, uh, in the UK got word of this and certain towns where they had high crime rates and not enough police coverage started putting up these big billboards. It was called Operation Momentum. They had these huge billboards with, with big pairs of eyes. And they say that crime was reduced in those areas by about 20%. And then, you know, one thing people said was, well, maybe just having those eyes there meant that crime had to migrate elsewhere. And the, the theory is that it, it actually didn't. It just made people more cautious and careful about how they were behaving. And uh, it, it's, a, it's a really interesting example of how certain evolutionary or social cues even when they aren't reflective of real surveillance mm. or something real, something that's that's really there, can still have a huge effect on our behavior. And that's a great example. There are other examples of this, you know, the use of mirrors. One of the suggestions for people who are trying to diet is you put all the food you shouldn't be eating too much of in a cupboard. When you open the cupboard, you need to have a mirror there. So you open the cupboard, you're about to reach for the chocolate bar, and you see yourself looking at yourself in the mirror. You, you get that kind of I'm surveilling my own behavior. And people kind of gingerly put the chocolate bar back, <laughs> which is, a again, it's silly on one level, but on another level, that makes total sense. Yeah. It's so interesting because, yeah, like when, when you hear a study like that, we, we like to think, I mean, we like to think we're these rational beings. We like to think things like our, our honesty are just, they're fixed or they're, they're, le they're at least under our own control. But when right. you hear a study like that, how, how malleable or influenced we are, I, I just find them so interesting. Yeah, no, they, they really are. I, I think what's interesting about them is partly what they tell us about how humans think, but also um, how once you understand these kinds of things, how powerful you how powerful you become and how powerfully you can shape the environment to to not necessarily shape behavior, because I think that's a strong word, but but to gently guide behavior one way or another, you know, even in stores where they have uh, or shops where they have a lot of shoplifting. Um, putting in more mirrors means that the shoplifters, who are usually people, it's not like someone is on a racket to just go and steal lots of things from stores. That does happen. Mm. But a lot of shoplifting is this kind of impulsive behavior to just say, I'm going to take that little thing and put it in my bag. But if you do that in front of a mirror, you're, you're not going to do it. And so putting these mirrors up in, in the strategic locations in stores, again, changes the, the level of, of, uh, of lost, lost merchandising due to shoplifting, which is, I think, interesting. Hurricanes get given names, for example, Katrina. Um, and you did an analysis where you realized that every decade, an extra $100 million could be raised in relief aid at no extra cost if we're more strategic about the names that we give to hurricanes. Can you explain? Yeah, it's actually even more than $100 million. The, the latest analysis suggests it's about half a billion. God. So, about, so it's, it, this is the basic idea that I'm... Um, there's a demonstration I do sometimes. If you show people all the letters of the Roman alphabet, so our alphabet that we use in the English language, you say which of these 26 is your favorite and you just think about it or you get people to pick a couple of the letters and then you ask them to put their hands up if one of the letters is the le first letter of their first name, middle name or last name. Almost everyone in the room will put their hands up. So I'm Adam Alter, so A looms large for me. It's one of my favorite letters. You might find that D is one of, the, one of your favorites. 
And um, this has certain implications. So it means that we're preferentially attracted to those letters. They capture our attention more easily. Um, and so when a hurricane comes through, as you said, we name these hurricanes using alphabetical lists. So in the Atlantic Basin on the east coast of the United States, um, we we have a list. It's 21 using 21 letters of the alphabet going down alphabetically. Some of the less common ones like X and Q are not used. Um, but this is just a way of saying, you know, we're all talking about the same hurricane. So when we say Hurricane Katrina, we all know, oh, we mean that storm from 2005 that did terrible damage to New Orleans, something like that. So these hurricanes um, are named in this way. And because we know that people are attracted to the, the initials associated with their names, um, some researchers did some work looking at whether donations were higher when you had a matching initial with the name of the hurricane. So if your name is Ken or Kevin or Catherine with a K, and Katrina comes through, you, it turns out you donate money, more money to the Hurricane Aid Relief Charity Drive. So, And sometimes it's quite a large effect. For some hurricanes, it's smaller, but for some, it's been larger. And, and when you look at that, it says something about how we should be naming these hurricanes. You know, we're naming them alphabetically, which is kind of, it's a, it's a good rule of thumb. Just use the alphabet, use alphabetical order. But if you know that people are not named using all the letters equally, we know that, for example, in, in the United States, and this is true in the UK as well, um, the most common initials in descending order are M, J, R, S, A. So if you know that, and you know that people are going to give more when the hurricane matches their initials, if the damaging hurricane happens to start with an M, you're probably going to get more money than if it starts with an O. And that means that you can quantify how much this name matching effect matters. And you can look at how, based on the hurricanes that come through and the way we name just using these random letters, how being a little bit more careful about it, more strategic about it, how much more money you could extract from people because they'd be more generous because of the name match effect. It's a little complicated because if you keep naming every hurricane with an M, M named people are going to eventually be tapped out. Sure. <laughs> so, but, but that aside, um, if you run the right kinds of simulations, yeah, you find that every 10 years or so, this is we're leaving about half a billion dollars on the table because we don't name these hurricanes strategically, which is, again, an incredible demonstration of the power of these cues to drive major, major important macro forces, macro outcomes. Um, and if we don't pay attention to them, we're often not kind of optimizing the design of the world we live in. Mm. Taking it back to maybe something slightly closer to home, when people have names that are easy to pronounce, they're more likely to raise up various hierarchies at work more quickly. So for example, lawyers in the middle part of their careers are more likely to be partners in the firm if they have simple names rather than complex names. Yeah. Yeah, this is some work I did with uh, with some colleagues of mine. So th this this concept is known as fluency, and it's it's basically the idea that humans prefer things in general on most dimensions that are easy to understand, easy to process, easy to make sense of. Um, we don't like difficulty. We don't have the brain resources to cope with difficulty or, or complexity on every front. And so we generally like things better when they're easy to deal with, whether whether that means they're easier to read, whether the font choice that you have is easy to, to process when you're writing a document. Um, it, there are lots of different ways of manipulating fluency, but one of them is the name choice. So you can have a name that's very easy to pronounce and you can have a name that's hard to pronounce. One way to think about that is imagine you're on the stage, you're presenting an award at an award ceremony, you open the envelope, and you look at the name. Now, if the name is something that's really simple, straightforward, within your culture, it's a name that's common, you understand how to pronounce it, that's a very fluent name. 
A disfluent name is one where there might be two different ways to pronounce it. You're not sure which one's right. It might be one where you've never seen the name before. It's novel or where the, you know, the, the combination of letters is something that you haven't seen. And so it takes a moment to get your head around it. It seems like a trivial thing, but humans are quite anxious socially. And so if you think about the context of meeting a new lawyer at a law firm, it's like two associates are starting on their first day. Um, one walks in with a very fluent name, one with a very disfluent name. Let's assume we control everything else. Let's say these are two white males, which is one of the analyses we did. Now, obviously, other things vary. Gender will vary. Ethnicity will vary. Country of origin. Let's assume these are two white males from the same country. But the only thing that differs is the, the fluency of the name. Um, what you see is that nothing really happens in the early part of their careers, but then you get this gap opening up in favor of the lawyers with the fluent names. They tend to rise up more quickly. They become partners faster at these law firms. And one of the arguments is as a tie-breaking device, the fluency of the name will, will mean that if I'm a partner and I meet these two lawyers, I say to the one who's more fluently named, why don't you join my team? Just because I feel less anxiety. It's just a small tiebreaker. Now, eventually, these lawyers with disfluent names catch up. They, they become partners at the same rate about 15 years later. But for the middle parts of their careers, there seems to be a gap that opens up in favor of those with fluent names, um, which is, it's dismaying. It's not a good thing to know. But it's if you are someone with a disfluent name, it's worth understanding what you can do about that. And there are certain things you can do. Like? Like, uh, you know, the best thing you can do is if we think about the presidents of the United States, we had a string of, of presidents with very, very traditional names. We had uh, a Don... We got a, let's skip over Barack Obama for a minute. We had a George, a Bill, another George, um, a Ron, a Jimmy. These were names that were incredibly fluent when these politicians were running for the presidency. And then we had Barack Obama, and people had not seen a name. Well, some people had seen the name before, but it was it was a much more, at least in the the culture, the in U.S. culture, it was a much more unusual name. And so people spent a long time getting their heads around the name. It became a kind of focal point for the campaign. Um, and, um, that, that disfluency obviously disappeared very fast. Once people used the name a lot, it became one of the most fluent names in, in the world because everyone knew the name Barack Obama. Um, and so a big part of, of fluency is, is exposure. Now the tendency for people with disfluent names is to use their name less often because they kind of kind of shield the name from people and they, they prefer not to use it. But the more times you use it, the more fluent it becomes. You can also... <coughs> You can also help people pronounce the name by giving them mnemonics, telling them the first time you pronounce it, it rhymes with this or it sounds like this. I, I teach, you know, 300, 400 students a year, and I have a lot of students who do something like that. And it helps me remember the name. It makes it easier for me to say it. I have much less anxiety about calling on them in class. So I see this uh, firsthand. It just reminded me of something I uh, I read a couple of years ago. It was, uh, it was the Arnold, it was Arnold Schwarzenegger, and he was he said when when he first started um, when he was first started acting, they wanted to change his name to Arnold Strong, and he was like, no, I'm not changing my name to Arnold Strong. He's like, I want it to be Schwarzenegger, and I think like the line was, uh, if it's hard to remember, it'll be hard to forget, or something like it was something like that. And That's so, good. <laughs> That's true. I mean, look, if he'd been Arnold Strong, I think, you know, that's that's a pretty good name, too. It has other benefits. But I think the, the name Schwarzenegger sounds so strong, it's such a kind of dominant name. It's long. They're at the sound of it, we associate it with Arnold. I mean, it's it's uh, it's taken on a life of its own. I think he would be a different person without the name, which is also something I've researched, this idea that that we in some sense 
come to mirror our names and our names kind of shape our own destinies. The idea is a name should just be a placeholder, right? It's just a way of distinguishing you from someone else. But names have a colossal effect on not just how quickly you rise up in the partnership in a law firm, but um, for politicians, whether they're likely to be elected, um, how much we tend to like people we don't know very well, the name actually stands in for likability to a large extent. Um, memorability. Schwarzenegger is a name that even if you forget the name itself, you'll never forget this guy, Arnold Schwarzenegger, even if you can't remember the exact name. He's unique because he has a unique name. Mm. Um, so there's, it's a pretty powerful cue that drives how we interact with other people. We have these nudges all around our lives, these kind of these, these cues, which we're being kind of I, 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 manipulated is not the word I want to use, but these kind of, um, you kind of, these, yeah, these nudges, I think nudges is an okay word. Does that make us, what, think more deeply about the environment that we're creating? Like, or I don't know, like, do you have like questions which you keep on coming back to again and again, which is fueling a lot of these experiments and your work that you do? Yeah. I, you know, I think the best research is research that is reliable and surprising. Um, so, all of these, uh, all the things we've discussed so far are surprising either because the effect exists at all or because of how big the effect is. Mm. You might imagine it's a small effect, but it turns out to be much larger. So I think when you when you change something a small amount and it has a big leveraged effect, so change of the name, huge effect on your outcomes for the next 15 years as a lawyer. Sure. That's that's surprising to me. So my question always is, is this effect real, which is important? You know, is this not nonsense? And then if it's not nonsense, um, what what does it matter? And then I guess the third follow-on in some of these is what do we do about it? So with the hurricane naming idea, if we're really leaving hundreds of millions of dollars of donation aid on the table, that's something certain organizations, policy organizations should understand. So we should be able to talk to the weather service and say, you know, the hurricane naming practices you're using are not ideal. With this very small, reasonably inexpensive tweak, let's change the list for 2020 or 2021. And once we do that, we can, you know, make people more generous with with what I think of as a fairly small change. I think that's something that we should understand. So I, I'm always asking, is this effect real? How big is it? And is there an easy way to leverage it for the good? A guy called Rory Sutherland, in, in one of his books, he, he was talking about Yale, uh, one of the most overrated philanthropists of all time, because actually most of the money and became from a guy called Somebody Dumber, but they didn't want they didn't want to name the university Dumber Dumber University, <laughs> so they gave it to like Yale got the credit because they were like it sounds much better. No one's going to go to a university called that. Dumber University. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's amazing! That's amazing. Yeah, I mean, you can't get away from this. These uh, these cues are so so powerful. P- people, you know, they're going to pay attention to them. So it's smart to to kind of engineer them and think a little bit about them before you you adopt them. What, what's the uh, what's the thin slices rule? Thin slices is just this term we use to describe um, snap decisions that we make with very little information. So, um, for example, you know, within the first three seconds of meeting people, you already have a sense of how much you like them and how how competent they seem. And you you think about three seconds, it's an incredibly thin slice. It's a very small slice of behavior. This may be the worst three seconds of this person's behavior. You're missing out on all the many hours of behavior that, that are more, you know, competent, capable, likable but you're going to make a lot of uh, decisions based on that first three seconds, which I think for people who are socially anxious is a really overwhelming idea. Mm. Now, the first three seconds of meeting people, a lot of us are still trying to get our footing. Um, and uh, the thin slices rule suggests not only that we do this, but um, there's a lot of research suggesting that it's fairly accurate to some extent. And it varies depending on the dimension. Um, I did some research, for example, looking at, um, you know, the, the game show Jeopardy, which is basically a trivia game show. Um, 
people before they play this game show they they record roughly five to ten seconds it's called a hometown howdy so i'm from i'm from australia i'm from sydney i might say something like hi i'm adam from sydney and um i like coffee you know something really mundane and if you play these for people before they go on the game show you ask these people how well do you think this person will do on the game show they're looking at five seconds of behavior that has nothing to do with intelligence or how quickly you hit the buzzer or any of the things that matter in the game show. But they, first of all, they agree. People say that that man or woman is going to do well. And they all agree. They're like, that is a person who's going to do well. And they tend to be right. So we've learned something about competence and capability over time, enough to know that there are certain little triggers or cues that we, first of all, all agree will predict those outcomes. And we tend to be pretty accurate even with very little information. Now, there are some things we do terribly badly. We are, we're deeply prejudiced as a species. There's a lot of discrimination. We're, we're not great with anything that's different from what we're used to, whether that's race, ethnicity, religion, um, gender. It doesn't really matter. Anything that you're not used to, you tend to be a little bit more negative about. And that's also knee-jerk, and it's often wrong. So it's not like we're always accurate with these thin slices. Often we're systematically inaccurate in ways that are very damaging. But also, we're sometimes very accurate. So it's, it's this interesting question. Malcolm Gladwell's book, Blink, is really about this phenomenon. Um, and it's about when these snap decisions are accurate, when they're inaccurate. It doesn't privilege the accuracy. It suggests sometimes we're good and sometimes we're bad at these decisions. But that's what the thin slices idea is. So there's some evidence that, you know, if you get a professor in the room and they spend, say, two minutes talking, and then they leave and you never see that professor again. And you, you're asked to rate the professor. How much will you learn with them? How much do you like them? How smart are they? How well prepared are they? All these questions that you then ask other people who have that same professor for 30 or 40 hours of class time. The overlap is incredible, which again is, I mean, on the one hand, it's, it's, there must be something leaking in your behavior, leaking out so that mm. people are getting reliable cues to, to something that is more robust and long term. On the other hand, if you think about it the other way, as you say, that's very anxiety provoking, that people have already consigned you to some sort of category like good or bad sure. so quickly. That's, that's a lot to overcome. What does a fulfilled life mean to you? Um, it's, a, it's such an interesting and big question. I think there are two big things that I'll point to. Um, one is there's this great campaign in the US um, for a, a beer called Dos Equis. It's the most interesting man campaign. And the thing that always comes comes back to me about that is how varied his life is you know he's it's a, it's tongue-in-cheek but this this guy who who does all these crazy things he wrestles bears he tangos in argentina he goes to the antarctic he he does all these he's an intellectual he's like got all these different kind of facets of his life and i think variety and cultivating variety of a breadth of interests breadth of experiences is really important you can do that through travel you could travel to lots of different interesting places um being an academic one of the really nice things about what i do is if something's interesting to me, I can study it for six months or a year or five years, and then I can move on and do something different. And that's one of the reasons I chose this career, because I love the variety that's baked into it. I think doing the same thing every day for some people might be rewarding. For me, it wouldn't be. So variety is absolutely critical. Variety of experiences, variety of pursuits, things like that. Variety of skill development as well, getting good at things that are a little bit diverse, like maybe something in the arts, something intellectual, something physical, a sport, something like that. So that's the first thing. The other thing I think is a really good measure is um, just kind of changing the world for at least one other human being. There might be many human beings, but if your existence on the planet makes at least one person's life better in some material way, I think that's a really good way of measuring 
a good life, a life well lived. It could be just making one person happy, or it could be some idea you have that you share with the world or something you do that makes five people happier in a particular context. It might be about one day of your life where this happens, or it could be some prolonged pursuit of some passion that ends up changing other people's lives. It doesn't have to be some big highfalutin thing, but I think that's a really good measure of, of, uh, of a fulfilled life. And what is one thing our listeners can do today that will have a positive impact on their lives? Yeah, so a lot of my work is about how we spend so much time in front of screens. You mentioned irresistible. Um, we spend, on average, about four hours a day in front of our phones, looking at our phones. So I think one really good thing we can do is um, most of us, 24 hours a day, can reach our phones without moving our feet. That means when we're sleeping, they're next to the bedside table or on the bedside table or sometimes even under the pillow for about 15% of us. Um, and all through the day, they're either on the desk or in the pocket or somewhere nearby. So my suggestion is take an extra hour every day where you can't reach your phone without moving your feet. Put it in a different room. Put it in a drawer far away. Just create some physical distance between you and the phone. And that hour will have a different complexion. It'll be richer, more interesting. Um, you might think a little bit differently about the world and your experience of the world. You might be able to solve some problems that have been puzzling you for a while. You might be more creative. You may connect better with other people in ways you don't anticipate. So I think the first thing to do is take 30 or 60 minutes a day away from your phone. Take a little daily vacation. I think that'll make pretty much everyone better off to some extent. Last but not least, how can people find out more about you and your work? Um, if you if you search for me, the thing about academics is everything's right out there. It's pretty easy to find us. Um, so if you search for Adam Alter, I've got a, a webpage that has, a, it's a sort of personal webpage that has all the information about my books, uh, my consulting work, my speaking, all of that sort of stuff. And then I obviously have an academic homepage that's much more focused on my research. Um, so those are probably the two best places. I'm also um, on Twitter as uh, Adam Lee Alter, A-D-A-M-L-E-E-A-L-T-E-R. Adam, fascinating. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you so, so much. Thanks for having me.